Chapter 14 of Collected Papers on Analytical Psychology. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Olivia. Collected Papers on Analytical Psychology by Carl Gustav Jung. Translated by Constance Ellen Long, 1867 to 1923. Chapter 14, Section 3. The Other Viewpoint. The Will to Power. We have, so far, considered the problem of the psychology of the unconscious processes, mainly from the point of view of Freud. We have thereby doubtless gained an inkling of a real truth, which, perhaps our pride, our consciousness of civilization, tries to deny, although something else in us affirms it. This situation is extremely irritating to some people, arousing resistances, and at the same time they are terror-stricken by it a fact which they are most unwilling to acknowledge. There is something terrible in admitting this conflict, for it is an acknowledgment of being swayed by instinct. Has it ever been understood what it means to confess to the sway of instinct? Nietzsche desired to be so swayed and advocated it most seriously. He even sacrificed himself throughout his whole life with rare passion to the idea of the superman, that is, to the idea of the man who, obeying his instincts, transcends even his very self. And what was the course of his life? It turned out, as Nietzsche himself prophesied in the passage in Zarathustra, relating to the fatal fall of the rope dancer, of the man who did not want to be surpassed. Zarathustra says to the dying rope dancer, Thy soul will be dead even sooner than thy body. And later, the dwarf says to Zarathustra, O Zarathustra, thou stone of wisdom, thou threwest thyself high, but every thrown stone must fall. Condemned of thyself and to thine own stoning, O Zarathustra, far indeed threwest thou the stone, but upon thyself will it recoil. When he cried his Ecce Homo over himself, it was again too late, and the crucifixion of the soul began even before the body was dead. He who thus taught yea-saying to the instincts of life must have his own career looked at critically in order to discover the effects of this teaching upon the teacher. But if we consider his life from this point of view, we must say that Nietzsche lived beyond instinct, in the lofty atmosphere of heroic sublimity. This height could only be maintained by means of most careful diet, choice, climate, and, above all, by many opiates. Finally, the tension of this living shattered his brain. He spoke of yea saying, but lived the nay. His horror of people, especially of the animal man who lives by instinct, was too great. He could not swallow the toad of which he so often dreamt, and which he feared he must yet gulp down. The Zarathustran lion roared all the higher men who craved for life back into the cavernous depths of the unconscious. That is why his life does not convince us of the truth of his teaching. The higher man should be able to sleep without chloral, and be competent to live in Nomburg or Basel despite the fogs and shadows. He wants woman and offspring, he needs to feel he has some value and position in the herd. He longs for innumerable commonplaces, and not least for what is humdrum. It is this instinct that Nietzsche did not recognize. It is, in other words, the natural animal instinct for life. But how did he live if it was not from natural impulse? Should Nietzsche really be accused of a practical denial of his natural instincts? He would hardly agree to that. Indeed, he might even prove, and without difficulty, that he really was following his instincts in the highest sense. But we may well ask, how is it possible that human instincts could have led him so far from humanity? 
into absolute isolation, into an aloofness from the herd which he supported with loathing and disgust? One would have thought that instinct would have united, would have coupled and begot, that it would tend towards pleasure and good cheer, towards gratification of all sensual desires. But we have quite overlooked the fact that this is only one of the possible directions of instinct. There exists not only the instinct for the preservation of the species, the sexual instinct, but also the instinct for the preservation of the self. Nietzsche obviously speaks of this latter instinct, that is, of the will to power. Whatever other kinds of instinct may exist are for him only a consequence of the will to power. Viewed from the standpoint of Freud's sexual psychology, this is a gross error, a misconception of biology, a bad choice made by a decadent, neurotic human being. For it would be easy for any adherent of sexual psychology to prove that all that was too lofty, too heroic. In Nietzsche's conception of the world and of life was nothing but a consequence of the repression and misconception of instinct that is, of the instinct that this psychology considers fundamental. This brings us to the question of perception, or rather, it were better to say, of the various lenses through which the world may be perceived. For it would hardly be permissible to pronounce a judgment on a life like Nietzsche's. It was lived with rare consistency, from the beginning to the fateful end, in accordance with his underlying natural fundamental instinct for power. It would hardly do to pronounce it to be merely figurative, Otherwise, we should make the same unjust condemnation that Nietzsche pronounced upon his polar opposite, Richard Wagner, of whom he said, Everything in him is false. What is genuine is hidden or disguised. He's an actor, in every bad and good meaning of the word. Why this judgment? Wagner is a precise representative of that other fundamental instinct, which Nietzsche overlooked and upon which Freud's psychology is based. If we inquire whether the other main instinct, that of power, was unconsidered by Freud, we shall find that he has included it under the name of ego instinct. But these ego instincts drag out an obscure existence, according to his psychology, alongside the broad, all too broad, development of the sexual theme. In reality, however, human nature wages a cruel and hardly to be ended warfare between the ego principle and that of formless instinct. The ego is all barriers. Instinct, on the other hand, is without any limits. Both principles are equally powerful. In a certain sense, men may account themselves fortunate in being conscious of only one instinct. Therefore, he who is wise avoids getting to know the other. But if, after all, he does get to know the other instinct, he is indeed a lost man. For then he enters upon the Faustian conflict. Goethe has shown us in the first part of Faust what the acceptance of instinct involves and, in the second part, what the acceptance of the ego and of his gruesome unconscious world would signify. Everything that is insignificant, petty, and cowardly in us shrinks from it and would avoid it, and there is one admirable means of doing so, namely, by discovering that the other thing in us is another fellow, a live man who actually thinks, feels, does, and desires all the things that are despicable and odious. In this way, the bogey is seized and the battle against him is begun to our satisfaction. Hence arise also those chronic idiosyncrasies of which the history of morals has preserved a few examples for us. The instance of Nietzsche contra Wagner, already cited, is particularly transparent, but ordinary human life is crammed full of such cases. It is by these ingenious devices that man saves himself from the Faustian catastrophe for which he evidently lacks both courage and strength. But a sincere man knows that even his bitterest opponent, or any number of them, does not by any means equal his one worst adversary. 
that is, his other self who bides within his breast. Nietzsche unconsciously had Wagner in himself. That is why he envied him his Parsifal. But even worse, he was a Saul and also had Paul within. That is why Nietzsche became a stigmatized outcast of the spirit. He had, like Saul, the experience of Christification when the other self inspired him with his Ecce Homo. What man in him broke down before the cross, Wagner or Nietzsche? It was ordained by destiny that one of Freud's earliest pupils, Adler, should formulate a view of neurosis as founded exclusively upon the principle of power. It is interesting and even fascinating to observe how totally different the same things appear when viewed in another light. In order to emphasize the main contrast, I would like at once to draw attention to the fact that, according to Freud, everything is a strictly causal consequence of previously occurring facts. Adler, on the contrary, sees everything as a finally conditioned arrangement. To take a simple example, a young woman begins to have attacks of terror. She wakes at night from some nightmare with a piercing cry. Calming herself with difficulty, she clings to her husband, imploring him not to leave her, making him repeat again and again that he loves her and so forth. Gradually, a nervous asthma develops, attacks of which also come on during the day. In such a case, the Freudian system begins at once to burrow in the inner causality of the illness. What did the initial anxiety dreams contain? She recalls wild bulls, lions, tigers, bad men. What does the patient associate with them? She told the story of something that had happened to her when she was still single. It ran as follows. She was staying in a summer resort in the mountains. A great deal of tennis was played, the usual acquaintances being made. There was a young Italian who played particularly well, and who also knew how to handle the guitar in the evenings. A harmless flirtation developed, leading once to a moonlight walk. On this occasion, the Italian temperament unexpectedly broke through, running away with the young man to the great terror of the unsuspecting girl. He looked at her with such a look that she could never forget it. This look follows her even in her dreams. The wild animals that persecuted her had it. As a matter of fact, does this look originally come from the Italian? Another reminiscence enlightens us. The patient had lost her father through an accident when she was about 14 years old. The father was a man of the world and traveled a great deal. Not long before his death, he took her to Paris, where, among other things, they visited the Follies Bergère. Something happened there that, at the time, made a deep impression upon her. As they were leaving the theater, a rouged female suddenly pressed up close to her father in an impertinent way. She looked at her father in fear as to what he would do, and then she saw that look, that animal glare in his eyes. An inexplicable something clung to her day and night. From this moment, her attitude to her father was quite changed. At one instant, she was irritable and full of venomous moods. At another, she loved him extravagantly. Then causeless fits of crying suddenly began. And, for a time, whenever her father was at home, she was tormented by terrible choking at table, with apparent attacks of suffocation, which were usually followed by voicelessness, lasting from one to two days. When the news of her father's sudden death arrived, she was overcome by uncontrolled grief, ending in hysterical laughter. But she soon calmed down, her condition improving quickly, and the neurotic symptoms disappearing almost completely. It seemed as if a veil of forgetfulness had descended over the past. Only the experience with the Italian roused something in her of which she was afraid. She'd broken off completely with the young man. A few years later, she married. The present neurosis only began after the birth of her second child, that is, at the moment when she discovered that her husband took a certain tender interest in another woman. This history raises a number of questions. For instance, what do we know about the mother? 
It should be said of her that she was very nervous and had tried many kinds of santoria and systems of cure. She also had symptoms of fear and nervous asthma. The relations between her and her husband had been very strained as far back as the patient could remember. The mother did not understand the father. The daughter always felt that she understood him better. She was, moreover, her father's declared favorite, being inwardly correspondingly cool towards her mother. These facts are indications for a survey of the meaning of the illness. Behind the present symptoms, fantasies are operative, connected in the first place with the young Italian, but further clearly referring to the father, whose unhappy marriage furnished the little daughter with an early opportunity of acquiring a position that really should have been filled by her mother. Behind this conquest there lies, of course, a fantasy of being the woman who is really suited to her father. The first attack of neurosis broke out at the moment when this fantasy received a violent shock, presumably similar to that the mother had once experienced, a fact that was, however, unknown to the child. The symptoms are easily comprehensible as the expression of disappointed and rejected love. The choking is based upon a sensation of tightening in the throat that is a well-known accompanying phenomenon of violent effects which we cannot quite swallow. The metaphors of language often refer to similar physiological occurrences. When the father died, it seemed that her consciousness sorrowed deeply, but her unconscious laughed after the manner of Till Eulenspiegel, who was sad when he went downhill, but was jolly when climbing laboriously, happy in anticipation of what was coming. When the father was at home, the girl was low-spirited and ill, but whenever he was away, she felt much better. Herein, she resembles numerous husbands and wives who, as yet, are mutually hiding from each other the secret that they are not, under all circumstances, indispensable to one another. That the unconscious had some right to laugh was shown by the subsequent period of good health. She succeeded in letting all that had passed retire behind the trap door. The experience with the Italian, however, threatened to bring the netherworld up again. But she quickly pulled the handle and shut the door. She remained quite well until the dragon of neurosis came creeping in, just when she imagined herself to be already safely out of her troubles in the, so to say, perfected state of wife and mother. Sexual psychology finds the cause of the neuroses in the fact that the patient is not, at bottom, free from the father. This forces her to resuscitate her former experience at the moment when she discovered in the Italian the very same disturbing something that had formerly made such a deep impression upon her when perceived in her father. These recollections were naturally revived by the analogous experience with another man and formed the starting point of the neuroses. It might therefore be said that the content and cause of the neuroses lay in the conflict between the fantastic infantile erotic relation to the father on one hand and her love for the husband on the other. But if we now consider the course of the same illness from the standpoint of the other instinct, that is, of the will to power, a different complexion is put upon the matter. Her parents' unhappy marriage afforded an excellent opportunity for the exhibition of childish instinct for power. The instinct for power desires that, under all circumstances, the ego should be on top, whether by straight or crooked means. At all costs, the integrity of the personality must be preserved. Every attempt, even what appears to be an attempt of the surroundings, to bring about the slightest subjection of the individual, is retorted to by the masculine protest, as Adler expresses it. The mother's disappointment at her taking refuge in a neurosis brought about the opportunity for the development of power and the attainment of a dominating position. Love and excellence of conduct are, as everybody knows, extremely well-adapted weapons for the purposes of the instinct for power. Virtue is not seldom made the means of forcing recognition from others. 
Already as a child, she knew how to obtain a privileged position with her father by means of specially pleasing and amiable behavior, even, occasionally, to supplant her mother. This was not out of love for her father, although love was a good means of obtaining the coveted superiority. The hysterical laughter at the death of her father is a striking proof of this fact. One is inclined to consider such an explanation as a deplorable depreciation of love, if not actually a malicious insinuation. But let us pause for a moment, reflect, and look at the world as it really is. Have we never seen those innumerable people who love and believe in their love only until its purpose is achieved, and who, then, turn away as if they had never loved? After all, does not nature herself do the same? In fact, is a purposeless love possible? If so, it belongs to the highest human virtues, which, confessedly, are extremely rare. Perhaps there is a general disposition to reflect as little as possible about the nature and purpose of love. Discoveries might be made which would show the value of one's own love to be less considerable than we had supposed. However, it were dangerous to life to subtract anything from the value of fundamental instincts, perhaps especially so today, when we seem to have only a minimum of values left. So the patient had an attack of hysterical laughter at the death of her father. She had finally arrived at the top. It was hysterical laughter, therefore a psychogenic symptom, that is, something proceeding from the unconscious motives and not from those of the conscious ego. That is a difference that should not be underrated, for it enables us to recognize whence and how human virtues arise. Their contraries led to hell, that is, in modern terms, to the unconscious, where the counterparts of our conscious virtue had long been gathering. That's why our very virtue makes us desire to know nothing of the unconscious. Indeed, it is even the summit of virtuous wisdom to maintain that there is no unconscious at all. But unfortunately, we are all in a like predicament with Brother Medardus in E.T.A. Hoffman's The Elixir of the Devil. Somewhere or other there exists a sinister, terrible brother, our own incarnate counterpart, bound to us by flesh and blood, who comprehends everything, maliciously hoarding whatever we most desire and should disappear beneath the table. The first outbreak of neurosis occurred in our patient at the moment when she became aware of the fact that there was something in her father which she did not control. And then it dawned upon her of what use her mother's neurosis was. When one meets with an obstacle that cannot be overcome by sensible and charming means, there yet exists an arrangement hitherto unknown to her, which her mother had been beforehand in discovering, and that is neuroses. That is the reason why she now imitates her mother. But, the astonished reader asks, what is supposed to be the use of neurosis? What does it affect? Whoever has had a pronounced case of neurosis in his immediate environment knows all that can be affected by a neurosis. In fact, there is altogether no better means of tyrannizing over a whole household than by a striking neurosis. Heart attacks, choking fits, convulsions of all kinds achieve enormous effects that can hardly be surpassed. Picture the fountains of pity let loose, the sublime anxiety of the dear, kind parents, the hurried running to and fro of the servants, the incessant sounding of the call to the telephone, the hasty arrival of the physicians, the delicacy of the diagnosis, the detailed examinations, the lengthy courses of treatment, the considerable expense. And there, in the midst of all the uproar, lies the innocent sufferer, to whom the household is even overflowingly grateful when he has recovered from the spasms. The girl discovered this incomparable arrangement, to use Adler's term, applying it on occasion when the father was there with success. It became unnecessary when the father died, for now she was finally uppermost. 
The Italian was soon dismissed because he laid too much stress upon her femininity by an inopportune reminder of his manliness. When the way opened to the possibility of a suitable marriage, she loved, adapting herself without any complaint to the deplorable role of the queen bee. As long as she held the position of admired superiority, everything went splendidly. But when her husband evinced a small outside interest, she was obliged again to have recourse to the extremely efficacious arrangement, that is, to the indirect application of power, because she had once again come upon that thing, this time in her husband, that had already previously withdrawn her father from her influence. That is how the matter appears from the standpoint of the psychology of power. I fear that the reader will feel, as did the Cadi, before whom the counsel of one party spoke first. When he had ended, the Cadi said, Thou hast spoken well. I perceive that thou art right. Then spoke the counsel for the other party, and when he had ended, the Cadi scratched himself behind his ear and said, Thou hast spoken well. I perceive that thou art also right. There is no doubt that the instinct for power plays a most extraordinary part. It is true that the complexes of neurotic symptoms are also exquisite arrangements that inexorably realize their aims with incredible obstinacy and unequaled cunning. The neuroses is final, that is, it is directed towards an aim. Adler merits considerable distinction for having demonstrated this. Which of the two points of view is right? That is a question that might well cause much brain-racking, for the two explanations cannot be simply combined, being absolutely contradictory. In one case, it is love and its course that is the principal and decisive fact. In the other case, it is the power of the ego. In the first case, the ego is merely a kind of appendage to the passion for love. And in the second, love is, upon occasion, merely a means to the end, that of gaining the upper hand. Whoever has the power of the ego most at heart rebels against the former conception, while he who cares most about love will never be able to be reconciled to the latter. End of chapter 14, section 3. Recording by Olivia.